0: Hello, guys, and welcome to AOA Talks. My name is Faisal UK, I'm the creative director of ARK, and I'll be hosting this podcast. I'll be posting live Instagram talks that I have with notable figures in architecture and design. These talks are conducted live on all of ARKey's Instagram page. That's at all underscore of underscore ARKey. So without any further ado, let's get into it. AOA Talks. Today, we have a very special guest. We have Sushant Varma from Rat Lab. Um, he's an architect, designer, uh, design entrepreneur, computational designer, and educator. Uh, he studied at the AADRL in London, and uh, he's a co-founder of Rat Lab, Rat Lab Education, and a studio director of Smart Labs. And he's also worked at Zahaided Architects. Uh, he's got 60-plus workshops, 40-plus uh, public lectures, uh, 12 accolades and awards, uh, 25 exhibitions, six research papers, and over 80 media impressions. Uh, so, if Sushan is ready uh, for the live, I'll just invite him on now. Hello, Sushan. How are you? Hey, hi. Hey, how are you? <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Uh, maybe you can give a brief introduction to the people to, uh, about who you are and uh, what you do.
1: Yeah, sure. So, uh, hi, hi everyone. Welcome to the live session. My name is Sushant Verma. I'm the co-founder of VATLAB Studio. And I run this organization called VATLAB, which is Research in Architecture and Technology, uh, headquartered in Delhi. And uh, I have a partner in London who teaches at Bartlett uh, at the UCL. And uh, yeah, we pretty much focus on uh, design, innovation, technology, uh, and very much deeply rooted into uh, academia and education in trying to bring in and some kind of innovation in academia and practice so that's pretty much uh, what we do and we have a very collaborative practice where we work with various architects and designers across the globe uh, and facilitate them using computational design and various other technologies that we are
0: uh, we have ventured into and uh, awesome. yeah awesome awesome um, i'm just going to turn off the uh, comments so it doesn't sure. uh, distract us yes. I'll turn yeah. it back on at the end, guys. So if you have any comments, uh, just leave it on the uh, question box, or just wait till the end, and I'll I'll turn it back on. So um, it seems like you do quite a lot, Sushant. Um, how do you have time to to kind of manage everything you do? Because as a student, as a young architect, you know, mm-hmm. just designing buildings is a twenty four seven job. So how do yeah. you find time to kind of do everything that you do?
1: Yeah, I think uh, I mean. It is kind of tough, to be honest, uh, living, living on the edge, pretty much on a daily basis and uh, trying to find a 25 hour day, uh, every day, you're you're seeking for an extra hour every day. And I think, uh, to be honest with you, uh, I think that's how I have always been. And that's how uh, I've been very passionate and committed towards the work that we are doing. So every, every morning, you pretty much get up and you have to kind of you know, you are pretty much on a mission to do something innovative do something different uh, in big or small ways, of course. So it is always challenging, but I think the, uh, the key lies in, uh, you know, setting up a very strong foundation, which I think I managed to uh, do in my past, uh, wherein I prepared myself and trained myself, my mind and my body both to be able to pretty much working all the time. And I think a lot of architects and designers can relate to that. And all of us are working that hard always, but I think you have to find your drive, you know, what drives you towards moving forward or towards, uh, you know, uh, trying to do certain things in life. So I think it's all about that. Yes, there are many things that, uh, you know, I'm involved with, right from teaching to to practice to, uh, you know, mentoring to uh, creating new programs and curriculums and working with other architects and stuff like that. So there are plenty of things and, and there's a book going on, writing, writing a few books as well. So there are a lot of things. I think the key lies in time management, which is very important. And I'm not saying I'm great I'm at it right now. I'm still learning. I'm still trying to be more productive. And I think one thing which uh, at least, uh, you know, the pandemic has taught, should have taught all of us is how to manage your 24 hours efficiently. Yeah. So I'm exactly. still working on it, to be honest, Hazel. It's it's not something that I understand,
0: uh, yeah. I think your, your approach is kind of very similar to Patrick Schumacher. You know, you have the sort of the practice going on, you have the book going on, you have your uh, workshops, you have your lectures. Um, does he inspire you in this way?
1: Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, I don't think I would be, You know, it, it's fair to compare me, uh, you know, to Patrick. I mean, he's such a, uh, you know, a celebrated personality, I would say in the field of architecture and design. So, but I do look up to him. I do, I, uh, I'm, I am definitely very inspired by him uh, for sure. And whenever I manage to, you know, strike a conversation with him, like I was in London recently uh, in January earlier this year, uh, I managed to meet him because he's, I was taking his, uh, you know, advice and suggestions. And I interviewed him for the book as well. Uh, I have always been fascinated with the way Patrick works and the way Zaha has operated, and I would say that yes, that was a very big inspiration for us uh, to motivate us to have, you know, ourselves rooted into profession and academia both. Uh, right. In fact, I remember since since we spoke about this, I remember my studio director. I'm actually graduated of MTech, not DRL. Uh, so since you mentioned the in the beginning. Right. So I graduated out of the M Tech program, and Patrick teaches in uh, in uh, DRL at AA. Uh, I remember I went to uh, you know Mike Winstock, uh our studio director, just to take a bit of advice from him at one point. Uh, that you know what what should we look forward to? He asked me a very simple question: that What do you want to do? You want to be into academia or practice? I said both. He said both is not possible. You know you have to choose one. I said. I think it's possible, but I kind of took it as a challenge. And that's when I saw how, you know, Patrick is managing these things and many other people are also doing that. It's yeah. definitely a harder life, I would say,
0: uh, Absolutely, yeah. but I
1: do see a connection between the two to be honest. Yes, yeah. so, yeah.
0: definitely. And um, it actually uh, it reminds me also of, uh, you know, in preparation to this, I watched some of your lectures on YouTube. And um I really like the lecture where you speak about um, diffusions of innovations, the sort of um, Everett Rogers theory of uh, yeah. how to spread ideas, and does that also come into play in a, not just yeah. practicing but also having other ways in which you bring parametricism into India, so through workshops, right. through publishing books, through lectures. Is that also yeah. sort of part of the part of the plan?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think you you really uh, you know picked the right uh, spot, I would say. Because that is something that, see, I, I always believe that having a theoretical backup or an understanding towards approaching something is very, very important. So talking of, uh, you know, diffusion of innovations, I actually read a lot about, uh, you know, the theory of, uh, diffusion of diffusion of innovation because I was very interested in how technology has become a part of our life. So I ended up reading a lot uh, and I've always done that. I mean, I don't get too much time off to to read much now, but. I've always maintained this some kind of relationship with books and you know reading material and all sorts of things, so I've read a lot about technology and innovation and not just in architecture but in other disciplines and other fields and I think that's where I have always drawn inspiration that and I realized that I came across with this theory that every technology takes a certain amount of time to diffuse into the you know lives of people and I then started to relate that with architecture in fact i I am you know, like elaborated on this thing in my in my upcoming book as well, uh, where there's a chapter on diffusion of innovation and in architecture. And I, I often mention that in my talks as well, because I really feel that technology is not suddenly going to, you know, come into the profession or change our lives and, you know, like, uh, you know, become a part of our workflows. I think it takes some bit of time. It takes some bit of effort. Yeah. So you have to plan that sequentially. So when it comes to education, yeah, you have to come across with, Let's say teaching material, workshops, and various kind of things, which which slowly acclimatizes people uh, towards technology and innovation, which is otherwise very difficult to adapt to initially for designers. So I right, do believe right. that architecture technology takes its own time uh, to permeate into the profession, and uh, yeah, that definitely the theory definitely and to understand that better.
0: You also had uh, this lecture that. Uh... You spoke about sort of your five lessons that you've learned, and yeah. uh, you said something very interesting. I think it was the second lesson where you said, um, mm-hmm. uh, "You said uh, rebellion isn't the best uh, isn't the yeah. best solution for change," and that was actually yeah. quite surprising because as architects, you know, we're taught to kind of rebel against the status quo and have our yeah. own sort of approach. So, uh, yeah. what what made you uh, have that uh, approach? Yeah. or theory and right, in
1: yeah. Uh so yeah i mean i mentioned that in one of my tedx talks uh, the five lessons which was more of a personal journey which i was trying to share with, uh, with with you know young students out there that you know it's not only what you see you know like on the face of it you know there is a lot that goes behind the scenes and how uh, you happen to do certain things and why you're doing certain things so to be honest yeah i mean as a student i remember those times when i was a rebel you know i was rebelling every single thing you know like if you tell me that you know, this is, this is red color. I would say, no, this is yellow. You know, why can't I see this as yellow? You know, it's like that. I was that kind of a rebel. So it was very naive as well, I would say. And I know that a lot of, uh, you know, designers in their formative years have the sense of rebelliousness also because we are seeing our idols out there who we see as, you know, rebels or arrogant or, you know, you know, those kind of personalities. And there's always a reason behind that, you know, so um, we, try to become like them at times. We try to become and inculcate those behavior. But to be honest, that's something that doesn't, it's not, if it's not natural to you, it's not natural to you. But what I realized right. was if you rebel on every single thing, you stop your mind to learn. And that's when yes. I realized there was a time in my life when I realized and had this revelation that I'm rebelling everyone and everything around me. You know, maybe they're right. Maybe they have a different perspective. So I think there is definitely a deeper connotation to to it, to what is truth, what is false, you know, what is reality, what is distorted reality and all sorts of things. So there was a time when I realized that you can't be rebelling on everything, otherwise you can't learn. You have to train your mind to be adaptive and be able to learn. That's when I realized that, okay, you can rebel the system, but not everything. And to prove something wrong, you have to produce something which is right, I would say. Produce a paddle. that is one approach I've always believed in, and that's something why we started Ratlab education as well, because we realized that uh, uh, there is no workshop culture in India you know at that time. I'm talking about 2015, uh, 2014, 15, when I moved back to India. So uh, I think rebelling is is good uh, to a certain uh, sense, but you can't go into extremes of being a rebel every time, you know, but then you're not right. learning
0: simply. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, speaking about rebellion, one of the most sort of popular rebels within architecture, Zaha Hadid and Patrick Schumacher, uh, you actually worked at, at uh, ZHA. Uh, can you yeah. maybe tell us about your experience there? And if possible, I'd like to ask people if they have a sort of a special story about Zaha or Patrick that they'd like to share. I'm sure a lot of people would like uh, to, to hear that.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, no, I mean, to be honest, I wish I could, I could, I had more time uh, spent at the office. Uh, I mean, now it's been a while. I mean, this was 2013 and 14. And then I had to move to Los Angeles after that because we got a residency. And then my plan was to move back to, to ZHA, but I came back to India and then uh, I set up the Rat Lab office in Delhi itself. And think things went pretty fine. Uh, uh, I think I had a wonderful experience. that was a time of my life, you know to be honest uh, uh, I mean one thing that you know, when you entered the office, you realize that everybody around you, you know two hundred three hundred people around you who you can meet, are of the same bandwidth and the you know the thought process and I think that is very important, yet yet very unique in their own way. So every person working there was you know I, I, I thought the cream of the profession, I would say but everybody was unique in their own ways and their own approach. So there was a lot to learn. It was an environment or an ecosystem, which allowed you to learn, which allowed you to, you know, be crazy as well. And you allow you to kind of do whatever you want to do. So they gave that freedom to everyone. I think that's what I loved the most. Uh, about ZHA, that they 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 pretty much, at least at that time, I remember there were no hierarchies. I mean, of course, there were hierarchies in how we were positioned, but uh, there were no hierarchies when it comes to ideas, conceptualization, and making a decision for the project. So uh, I managed to work on quite a few projects in a short span of time, jumping from one project to the other, one team to the other. So, which allowed me to meet a lot of people, which allowed me to collaborate with a lot of people, and that's where my understanding of real-time collaboration came into place and I would say that's where I learned that you know any work any innovation that happens has to be collaborative you know that's what we are not usually taught about we always think that you know somebody makes a sketch and that becomes a building you know that's and and there are 200 people drafting drawings for that that it doesn't happen like that to be honest it's a very collaborative process back and forth and that's what I realized at ZHA's office Uh, um, I I, I didn't have of course did not have too much of interactions with Zaha because uh, she uh, wasn't very accessible I would say but Patrick was very very accessible and I remember having a few discussions with Patrick on not just the projects but at that time I was writing a research paper I was published in a book so I took the book to him and showed him the article and took his perspective I took his advice about uh, should I move to LA and then, you know, because of a six month residency, it was awarded to us. Uh, It was a prestigious award and we wanted to take that opportunity, but it also meant that I had to leave London and move to LA uh, after getting into Zaha and uh, through a very rigorous process and getting the visa work visa, which was very tough at that time. So I think those interactions, those moments, those, you know, small little discussions here and there in the project, sitting on the project meeting, uh, you know, and having to discuss about some ideas, you you learned a lot. I mean, that's what I was very observant when I was at the office. Uh, I used to talk to a lot of people. I used to, uh, you know, look into what other people are doing, what kind of projects they're working on. So very, very interesting uh, studio
0: to be associated with. Right, and uh, there was probably a lot of parametricism going on. So uh, I have a question here from Christina Ledesma, and she asked, uh, why do you use parametricism? And um, uh, maybe you can, you can add to that sort of how you first came uh, into yeah. contact with parametricism, how you kind of came across it, because it's not the most popular style of architecture. In most universities, they don't teach it. They don't teach the theory or the methodologies or the logics. It's, it's quite a yeah. niche sort of avant-garde style. So how did you sort of come across it and what got you interested in, in parametric? Yeah. Sure.
1: So I think, to be honest, I, I, I'll, I'll start from the base of it and the foundation of it, to be honest. So when I was an architecture student, I think in my second or third year uh, of my Bachelor of Architecture, uh, I was very interested and intrigued with kind of complexity of some kind. You Anything that looks complex, I always got intrigued to it. Like, The geometry and the form, and you know, how does that work and how does that happen? So that's that's when it started, when it developed a deep interest in complexity, Uh, complexity, chaos, uh, you know, all those kind of theories and understanding geometry. Sorry, deconstructivism. Deconstructivism as well, and I think that was a very common, uh, uh, you know, talk that time because at that time, I'm talking of year two thousand six, two thousand seven. Uh, yeah. It was like 13, 14 years back, and that this is time before
0: before Patrick coined parametricism in 2008. I think he had already
1: coined it, but it wasn't very popular that time. Yeah, yeah he it had wasn't very popularized. Yeah. yeah. So I was very interested in deconstructivism and understanding the theories because, of, of course, as a student, you are bombarded with understanding of modernism, postmodernism, and maybe deconstructivism. And looking at works of Peter Eisenman and Zaha and uh, even Kalatravas, elegant forms and stuff like that. And I was very deeply interested in complexity and mutations of geometry. So I started developing a dissertation and thesis around that at that time. And that's when I did a lot of research, a lot of study. I spoke to a lot of people. And the term that was popular that time was called digital architecture. So work parametric or computation was not very popular that time. So everybody called it as digital architecture, but digital architecture also had a very negative connotation with it because uh, you know everybody thought that it's only digital you know this is something that will only stay digital and can never be in physical formation uh, so I think that's pretty much how slowly the word parametric design became popular and now I mean I like to call it computational design, but people like to associate with it as a style. Uh, yeah. I myself do not believe as of now, I would say, uh, in, in styling of architecture or, or having your own style or finding your own style and journey, because I truly believe in design innovation and innovation can come through thinking through, through the process of the project, through, uh, the materiality, through the, uh, you know, experience, spatial experience or anything. So my ideology is innovation and that's what I believe in right now. So I do not follow that. Okay, parametricism is what we do. To be honest, we are always seeking innovation. Yes, parametric design tools, computational design methodologies do form a part of it. But who knows? Five years down the line, we may be following something else. You know, five years down the line, we may be having new technologies out there, and it's already emerging now. So uh, I would suggest uh, you know we should not get too overwhelmed with the styling of architecture. Uh, but of course, everybody has their own ways of, uh, you know, categorizing architecture. Also, before I f- uh, finish this thing and more to the next part, I also want to add that any style of architecture, you can always, you know, predict that or understand the, you know, the, uh, let's say the aspects of a style when you're looking back into the past, when you are in yeah. that moment, you usually can't figure those things out. You can't have principles defined when you are in a particular moment. In fact, my dissertation was all about that. When I was trying to define principles of, uh, it was called, uh, plectic architecture at that time, which actually means like super complexity and complexity. So that what, how do we define the principles of plectic architecture? And I think that defined my, uh, formative understanding of styles and, uh, what kind of methodologies one follows. Uh, yeah.
0: But yeah, right So now I
1: think people are following parametric design as, as a style, for
0: sure. Right. Uh, yeah, I think um, because Patrick kind of framed it as a, as a paradigm, sort of like the, yeah. the next modernism sort of thing. Uh, yeah. but, uh, okay, so, so you started RAT Lab after uh, leaving ZHA. Um, maybe can you uh, sort of tell the people what RAT Lab is? Uh, what yeah. you do, because you do quite a, quite a lot of things. And it's, it's called oh. um Research in architecture and technology, right?
1: Yeah, that's what RAT stands for. And yeah, we get we get that question very often, what is RAT in RAT Lab? So RAT is research in architecture and technology, and that's pretty much what our initial ideology was. Um, so me and Pradeep, while we were doing our masters at the like uh, I remember we were, we were doing a lot of case studies and examples and looking at other people's works and architects across the globe. And what we realized at that time was that, you know, a lot of people are not using technology. A lot of people are not inculcating research in their work and projects. So that's when we started off for, you know, formulating this so-called organization or a group rather at that time that, okay, let's, let's form a community of people who believe in this approach and believe in this idea and vision. So me and Pradeep thought that, okay, let's, let's formulate an organization and let's see how it goes forward. You know, like we, we did not know that time that it would end up being a studio or even an educational uh, you know, cell, so to say. Uh, so we thought, okay, let's let's bring in some ideologies, do some competitions, do some research, and try to bridge the gap between design and technology. And that right. became the foundation of the organization. And then slowly we were joined by a few more people from different countries who wanted to be a part of the organization. Also, I think the name was very catchy that time, uh, that a lot of people found a lot of interest in being a part of RAT Lab. And, uh, and, uh, so, so what we thought was that we would work with other architects and help them be more innovative by helping them through technology, because everybody does not have that understanding of technology or the specialization of technology. So we started to develop a specialty in, uh, you know, in itself. And that's how Ratlab started. Uh, and then slowly we did a lot of works while doing other works and being associated with other organizations. But when we moved to India, when I moved to India in 2014, uh, Pradeep went to UK and Germany uh, back and forth that time. Uh, we thought we'll work with a lot of architects in India and train them and teach them to uh, inculcate technology in, in architecture. And that's when we realized that there is a large void in the edu- education sector as well because students are not exposed to the right things, the students are not exposed to uh, you know the plethora of technologies that are available and uh, that's when we took a mission to to ourselves that you know instead of asking people to change why don't we bring in a change and then let's see how that changes the profession and I think in the last five years we, we find ourselves very successful in doing that to be able to bridge that gap between design and technology uh, in India at least. Uh, so yeah, that's what we do I mean, we are consulting various uh, architects and designers, also collaborating with fashion designers, uh, you know, also feeding in a lot of research and the educational cell is a different, uh, you know, different organization in itself now, which has really scaled up in the last few years, uh, where we are able where to, we, the way we actually met
0: was through, was through, um, smart labs. So, um, how does that kind of fit into the, to the bigger goal of Brat Labs?
1: Yeah. So I think smart labs was something that we always wanted to do as a studio. So, so the whole idea was to uh, bring, make education smarter. That was our initial idea. And I also mentioned about that on my first TEDx talk that, you know, why, why is not education smart? You know, we are talking of a phone being smart. We have smartphones. We have smart TV. We have smart gadgets. We have smartphones. Everything is becoming smart. I mean, a lot of it is a marketing gimmick as well that I understand, but at the same time, technology is getting everywhere. However, at least in India, I realized, and, and I later realized that that's common to a lot of other countries as well, that education system is still obsolete. It is still very old style and conventional, and we don't have new ways of teaching. So that's when we started to build upon smart labs and uh, finally launched that about three years back, Uh, the fourth batch is going to be starting this year. And it was, it is pretty much like a mini master's program, I would say. And I got a lot of people on board and we had only one mission that, you know, whatever you have learned in your master's or your higher education, how can we bring it all compressed into one semester of program? So we are really looking into a, you know, a pedagogy where we allow students to learn and create an ecosystem for them that they can learn and innovate. And that's when smart labs kind of was born. It started with a uh, few students, and then it grew, and it became international after that. And now we have people from all across the globe being a part of Smart Lass program. Uh, and every year we are coming up with something new and innovative. You know, so uh, so so the mission of Smart Lass was to bring in uh, an education, which is let's say 20 times cheaper than having a post grad studies in a in a in a celebrated university. And making it accessible to students at least for India that was our aim and uh, I think it's a very exciting studio the main thing that we started was very interestingly uh, uh, related to the times right now we are having that we we started online education which was completely new at that time three years back at least in India so it started as a hybrid studio combination of online learning and studio learning combined together so the studios are where the teaching happens online is where facilitation happens this year we are trying to reverse the whole psychology and the whole whole methodology of working because what we have realized is that now students are ready for online training also so we can really leverage the online teaching now because because of the covid everybody has gone online so we are putting in more content we are putting in more online lectures and stuff like that so the idea was to bring in education home. It's like that.
0: I yeah. think you're very ahead of the curve because now, now it's kind of a popular thing for everything to be virtual. Well, you started yeah. this quite, quite a while ago. And um, I have a question here from Dwani Shah who's asking, what do you think is the future of architecture considering the current situation? So given you know the pandemic, the lockdown, how do you think this will affect architecture? And maybe I should add also... Um, with also this sort of new technologies and new logics of ai and computation do you think the role of an architect will will transition from a sort of a sort of a designer to more of a programmer where we sort of set parameters as opposed to sort of minute details do you think that's that's in the works for architecture
1: yeah so uh okay so i would say Architecture, I mean, as a profession is definitely going to change and it is being changed now. I mean, a lot of things are definitely taking a hit, to be honest. And, uh, I think we need to evolve now and now is the time to evolve and adapt. I really think that in any kind of crisis, the best of the leaders, the smartest of the people, the best of the, uh, you know, people who can leverage a crisis, uh, are the ones who can emerge successfully out of it. And it's more like a survival of fittest to be honest. And I mean, I I mean, since we're having a very candid chat, I can bluntly, honestly say that that people who are not innovating, they're not going to survive, to be honest. So you need to innovate in your methodologies of working. And I'll give you a few examples. For example, let me talk of the profession, uh, you know, architecture as a profession. So let's say the construction speed is going to reduce, let's say the, the, you know, uh, I mean, I won't get into too much into details of this thing that how it's getting affected because all of us know that constructions are stalled. Uh, you know, we have a, uh, you know, we have a lack of machinery, resources, labor, all sorts of things. Uh, so what do we do in that sense? I mean, the business is definitely going to go down. So what do you do? I think the key lies in uh, uh, innovation as uh, becoming an entrepreneur in certain ways and taking the responsibilities of certain things. So for example, the the things that did not never existed in architecture profession will cease to exist now. And you need to grab that opportunity and be able to do something which uh, is lacking right now and bridge the gap. For example, uh, you know, 10 years down, 10 years back, we never had social media like that popular, for example. So I could not access a lot of things which other people are doing. Now on my, on my smartphone, I can access what other people are doing in different countries. And I can talk to people. We, uh, we are communicating in different countries right now, you know, so all of that is possible using technology. So that gap is being filled by social media, for example. So similarly, architecture as a profession also has a lot of loopholes and gaps right now. We need to understand what are the gaps right now. For example, there was a lot of discussions about machine learning and artificial intelligence. You know, people were always like, you know, will computers take over our jobs and all sorts of things. But what do you do now when you have to you know reorganize everything? For example, an office needs to be redesigned in a certain manner. You know, it will yeah. take like us a few years to design that. But if we can program a system and have a machine learning algorithm which allows you to reconfigure an office space in the most optimum method, why not leverage that? Why not use that? So that's a gap that yeah. we're talking about. So if you can have an expertise in that, you are there to fill that gap, you know, and capitalize yeah. on the opportunity. So I think it's for people to step in and take a role which they never imagined they could take before. And uh, education is affected badly. People sitting at their home having like so much of screen time right now. uh, It has its own positives and uh, negatives as well. So as a student, definitely things are going to go difficult. I know a lot of students who applied for masters and were planning to fly to different countries to start their masters and now suddenly they realize they have to sit in their home and, uh, you know, do a master's program online uh, and paying that much amount of money as well. You know, so suddenly things have changed. Nobody predicted and imagined that. So how do you you create an alternative education system? You know, so that's something that we are working on. I mean, that's something I would probably talk about at the end uh, that what we are trying to bring in uh, uh, new in terms of design education. But uh, I think definitely things are changing. We have to accept that. Right, things are, so we need to learn to adapt.
0: If right. we get and stuck that's to do with,
1: in the current scenario, it's going
0: to be difficult for us, you know. Right, and that's to do with sort of the design and the practice aspect of it. And here we have yeah. a question to do with uh, more of the construction aspect of it. We have a question from Matthew Vanelli, who says, um, what construction techniques are we going to see in the future?
1: Yeah, I think uh, robotics is definitely going to be very, very popular now. You know, something that has been in in practice since the last decade or something, I would say, Uh, more than a decade, actually, but popularized in the last decade, uh, where people always had this fear that, you know, again, robots will take over our jobs and all sorts of things, but then we need to automate things. We have realized that, you know, if a virus can actually change the life and become a health or safety hazard, we need to maintain certain, you know, standards. So new standards are going to be formulated. New techniques are going to be formulated. So I I predict a lot of automation going to be happening, not just in designing, but also in construction. So definitely robots taking, taking, uh, you know, place something that has happened in uh, automobile industry, you know, many decades back, you know, the the whole uh, assembly line, which was operated by humans before, uh, which was leading to errors and inefficiencies and problems was replaced by robots. So humans do not lose their jobs, but their job gets reinvented, you know, in the chain of things. So there is always a cycle of things. It is where we see. So it's it's like a cycle or a loop where technology and humans both have their role, you know, it's just that it kind of shifts. So the humans play a different role to design a technology and technologies play a different role to not just design, but also to help you take the work forward. So I think in construction industry, a lot of automation, robotics, Uh, maybe drones as well. So using drones and a lot of research on drones and how drones can help in the construction process has been happening in, uh, you know, a lot of progressive schools like AA, Harvard, MIT. All of these studios always research on how drones are going to be incorporated in the ecosystem of construction. And now is the time to do that. So how do we as architects do that? We need to collaborate with technologists. We need to collaborate with engineers, we need to collaborate with uh, data scientists, we need to collaborate with robotiers, you know, so all of that needs to happen now, so adapt, collaborate and reinvent yourself, I think that's the
0: need of the hour right now, I think Absolutely, and uh, possibly the same thing also for project management, I guess, so learning to adapt to new conditions, new technologies, new events that happen.
1: Yeah, absolutely because, I mean, you have to see like how uh, for example everybody is zooming right now you know like everybody is on zoom and various right. other platforms this is an adaptation for sure you know this is an adaptation that we are learning we are preparing ourselves and acclimatizing to a new ecosystem of working and i think to be honest i was uh, you know very recently looking up into various platforms where we can work remotely because now what is happening is we are provided with a very good opportunity that suddenly everybody is getting programmed and trained to work remotely or work from home or work from different countries, so that is leading to a lot of collaborations. You know, something that, for example, initially when we were working, we were a very collaborative, cloud-based setup. You know, we've always, we've always, uh, it has always been in the description of the company right from the beginning that we are a cloud-based organization, that everything that we do is basically on a cloud system and network, which we've always maintained, and. People from different countries could associate with us and work with us and we could build up a research and that's how innovation happens. And then suddenly everything stopped a bit or slowed down because we had to restrict ourselves to a studio in New Delhi and we could only work with people in India. And suddenly now we realize, okay, here's an opportunity where I can have a team member sitting in London. I can have another team member sitting in Egypt and still working on the same projects and research, which we are doing in some other country. That is what an international practice is all about so I was actually looking into management softwares and programs where we can manage our workflows uh, easily and keeping a track of things and be more efficient because uh, and we are still learning as well to be honest so I think that's one thing that we need to adapt to in terms of project management on-site as well on-site and off-site
0: both right and uh, maybe the last question on this topic is uh, an arc question that's uh, from Annie Ruda he says, what kind of methods, ways, skills to ensure work from home is as effective as uh, conventional ways?
1: Yeah, I think that's something that I'm still figuring out. Yeah, I think that's something that I'm still figuring out, to be honest. Uh, I'm not very sure, uh, you know, what, uh, uh, what is the most efficient method, but we are still trying to adapt to new systems and methodologies. Uh, See work from home is definitely a challenge for a lot of people. Now for me to run the organization uh, You know sitting at one place and remotely handling a lot of things Definitely is very challenging and I'm still trying to work around ways to make it more efficient for myself and others as well team members are also facing a lot of challenges because What's happening right now is you know the the boundaries of your personal space and professional space are absolutely blurred right now So we are not able to distinguish that so uh, so that, that's one issue I mean like you know like in my house also you know like I have my wife sitting somewhere and working and remotely working with our, her office and team and I'm doing that in another room and then suddenly we both are in kitchen and this and that you know so many things are happening around so that's it's always like that I right. mean there are challenges I think technology is the solution to it and when I say that I'm myself exploring a lot of new technologies, a lot of new apps, a lot of new methods which can track our time, which can track and make us more efficient. And I think that time is not very far where we might have you know, integration of technology on, let's say maybe I'm wearing a smartwatch, which which tracks uh, maybe which can track what project I'm working on, which can track if I'm actually relaxing in the house or I'm actually working. And that gives a signal to my team member that, hey, I'm not i'm not really working and i'm relaxing somewhere you know it's kind of scary right. but but we need these kind of systems in place to be more efficient otherwise most of us i mean imagine like as a community everybody loses the the methodology of working efficiently you know how how things will fail and crash so i myself am exploring a lot of management apps work management project management apps and trying to see what what works best uh and yeah, we're hoping for a solution from technology. To be honest, here
0: as well. Uh, so um, I also wanted to ask you about uh, your your book that you have coming up. You spoke about it earlier. Uh, yeah. You sat with Patrick and I spoke to him about it. So can you maybe yeah. tell us a bit about the book, what it's about, what we can hope to see in it, the sort of contents yeah. of the book? Sure.
1: Sure. So uh, so the book is called uh, Filling the Void: Rise of Technology in Architecture. And I think we started writing this book uh, almost five years back, to be honest. It's taken us a very long time to reach, uh, make it reach at a certain state because things have been evolving in a very, very fast pace. You know, whenever we write about particular technology or a methodology, it gets outdated very quickly as well. So the book is actually about a theoretical standpoint and understanding of technology in architecture and design uh, and how technology has always played a role to create a revolutionary uh, change so to say in various disciplines and we're trying to draw comparisons from different disciplines like automobile industry, television, radio and all sorts of even even world war and taking uh, you know examples from uh, and references from those places and how arch- in architecture has played a big role to take um, you know bring, bring in a change or a leap. So th- it's a theoretical standpoint it's more like a very th- theoretical understanding for any design student or a young professional to have a deeper understanding of technology because that's what I always found that people may know certain technology people, people may know all certain software, but they don't have an absolute background of technology. So it's more of a compilation of that where we are introducing how technology has started to come into architecture slowly uh, and how it is starting to change things in a, in a more organized manner. And at the same time, we are taking perspectives from a lot of global, uh, personalities such as Patrick Schumacher and Arthur Mamoumani. And then we have people from, from uh, Heatherwick studio, from Norman Foster's office, uh, from ZHA code from, from Bartlett. A. So there is, there is a global, uh, perspectives chapter, uh, for which I interviewed Patrick as well. And, uh, and and i think all of that is coming in together as a very good compilation of how technology rose with time in architecture so that's why it's called filling the void uh, rise of technology in architecture and uh, and then we are also mentioning about the education how education has really evolved and reformed in a certain manner how this alternative education of workshops has changed the way people think and work and uh, so it's a very interesting uh, theoretical standpoint. Uh, it's a volume one right now. We have already started to work on volume two. Uh, volume one is, is kind of held up with the pandemic right now, but uh, the moment things kind of ease out, we will be releasing the book very soon. Uh, so,
0: yeah. Uh, well, I wish you the best of luck. The best yeah. of luck with that. And hopefully we can get a copy so we can share it on this platform and Absolutely. also on art and i'm personally looking forward to to reading it as well uh i have a sort of maybe a personal interest question um you've written multiple research papers how do you sort of um uh, how do you how do you go about writing papers and getting them published on on topics to do with architecture because that's not a sort of that's not something that's taught in school We're, we're taught more of the professional practice and not the theoretical side of things
1: yeah right i think uh so this is something I got introduced with, uh, you know, uh, at the beginning, uh, of my masters, I would say. So when I was doing my masters, I mean, that's when I started to, I mean, of course we did a dissertation and a research in our undergrad school as well, but that wasn't very intense or very extensive. I would say, although I was, I was, I was guided by some very smart people to put me in the right direction. So there was a very good mentorship and mentoring happening that time. Uh, but when I started the masters at the AA, that's when I realized that what is the really real meaning of research and how, what is the importance of a scientific research and a scientific community and peer reviews and all sorts of things. So that's when we, me and Pradeep started to write a lot of papers of our ongoing research, what we were developing and just started to submit that in a lot of conferences. So, I mean, even if we get to know there's a conference happening, which requires a submission on adaptive architecture or, uh, you know, how to how does parametric design work in architecture or anything like that, we would submit our paper, we would write the abstract, we would, we would define the paper and submit our research and out, I think three out of 10 would get shortlisted and selected, seven would get rejected that time. Uh, And then we wrote the complete study and research. And that we realized was actually helping us, uh, you know, build a foundation to our larger research or the larger goals that we are trying to achieve in life. Right. So that has been a very good constant in the last many years, where we try to do a research paper on, let's say, spatial analytics, urbanism, and various other things. And we encourage our students to now write papers, and we can help them and guide them in a certain manner. Because I think uh, being updated with the scientific community is very important, because Architecture is a profession which can make us very blinded at times, you know, there is a scientific community which is working on innovation and then here as an architect, I'm drawing the sketch and I think that is innovative, you know, I may be in my own zone, uh, but that is the wrong thing to, to believe. So it's very important to be connected to the you know scientific community, to have your research peer reviewed by experts and I myself am now on editorial board for a lot of peer reviews where I read a lot of research. And to be honest, more than imparting my knowledge, it is also about learning from them as well and being updated. Right. So I always believe that a lot of CAD conferences, uh, you know, Acadia, Ecad, you know, uh, all of these conferences uh, are very, very fine, refined communities of uh, experts and researchers. And I mean, you talk to like some PhD students, and you realize the importance of research. You know, that's where it comes down to. So you really wanna be an expert in something, you have to do a good research. And at some point of time, you probably require a PhD in a certain subject as well to be really called as an expert in that.
0: Right, awesome, well, thank you, thank you for that. Um, I'm gonna turn the comments back on to see maybe if uh, if we've got any questions. And uh, maybe while we get the questions in, Let's say there's, there's students listening to this and uh, this might be the first they've heard of parametricism or parametric design. Uh, what, what would your advice be of uh, what they should do, how they should get started? Uh, maybe some resources, yeah. some books, some websites they can check out how to get yeah. started.
1: Right. So I think I would advise to be, uh, to put your focus on the right place. You know, the problem right now, I'll start with the challenges and then I'll come with the opportunities. Uh, The challenges right now, which students are facing, as far as I understand, because a lot of students reach out to to us for these kind of issues as well, that there's a lot of content out there right now. There is a lot of information out there. How do you convert that information into knowledge? You know, that is something that has to be a self-driven process. You know, like, or, or somebody guiding you in a certain manner or a certain direction. So internet is, let's say, flooded with information. You go to YouTube, you can find... If I want to learn a particular software or a tool, I would get 200 talks and 200 tutorials on that, you know, pretty much for free. Uh, but I always, only wanted one. So how do I make sure that that one is the best out of the 200, you know, because I can't go through all the 200 at one time. So it is very important to understand and do a background understanding and research about, uh, let's say, whose tutorial is it, who is, who is the speaker, who is talking about it. And I'm not saying that the ones who are, who have lesser experience, uh, are are creating things of lesser meaning, but all I'm saying is that you have to understand that there are certain platforms, which might give you certain correct information. So you have to be in the right platform and in the right ecosystem. For example, I'm a regular uh, listener to the talks that happen at the AA and SciARC. And I've always done that. And now slowly listening to talks at MIT and Harvard as well. So I would not go on YouTube and look for a talk. On maximum, I can go and look, look for a Ted, TED talk or a TEDx talk by a refined speaker. So that limits my attention span and time. Same goes for any kind of learning, I think. And this is just my personal advice. I mean, s- people may have a different approach to that. My approach is always to stick to a few platforms. So that's what we are trying to do as, uh, as an academic community as well. That we try to create let's say, workshops or, or programs that carry forward with the same students, you know. So in the five years, we have built a community of students. To be honest, I pretty much know the names of all the 2,000 students I, I've worked with and I've, I've well, taught in various workshops, yeah. I mean, right. uh, or, or I would know them by, by face and uh, look at their work and recognize them. That's because we have always been very driven and passionate about their processes and all of that as well. So I think it's very important to stick to a particular platform it is very important to stick to, uh, knowing where to look for a certain information and categorize your information. So for students, bring in the focus and try to learn things step by step and be a little open minded about things, you know, like questioning things is good at times, but over questioning things, being overcritical, being asking questions on every single thing that somebody is doing is not the right way or right approach, you know? So I think it's very important to do it yourself. I'll give you an example, like uh, I recently, I mean, we were having this discussion with how people write on social media, you know, like, and as we we were discussing that, how people can go to like, you know, even uh, Norman Foster's project and comment about it or Peter Eisenman's projects and comment some random stuff or, you know, there are various kinds of things that people express in social media. It's a free, free world. Uh, But at the same time, you have to realize that If you haven't done that thing, you don't know the constraints of that particular thing. You don't know the potentials of that particular thing. So we have to become very, you know, we have to help each other in this ecosystem right now. We can't be pulling everyone down. We can't be over critical about everything. You have a critical question. You can critically question something to be able to learn from that. But just to question that this is wrong, this is right, is not the right approach. So I think young people need to be a little more careful and ethical in terms of how they use technology and social media as well. And uh, I don't know why the question drifted into this direction, that's kind of irrelevant. <laughs> but uh, I think it's it's very important to be focused uh, on a certain goal of your mm. learning.
0: And uh, while we're speaking about the topic of sort of education, um, you know, we could speak about different topics all day. I've that's got a true. lot of questions left, but, uh, We've taken up enough of your time. So you've actually got an announcement to make uh, for maybe part yeah. two of this conversation, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, so we are doing a number of things that, uh, I mean, uh, in terms of education. So we have always been questioning the, you know, the methodology of teaching and how do you make the perfect uh, or a very fair pedagogy in which students can learn in a certain way. And using that, what we're trying to do is, uh, you know, we're coming up with a platform. In fact, that's something that we've been working on for the last many years now. And we are about to launch that community very soon. And uh, it will first open up to all the Rat Lab Education members who we have as a community member. And then it will be an invite-only community at in the, the beginning. Uh, so what we are trying to do is whatever we have taught in the last five years, various workshops, various programs, whatever associations we have had, we are trying to bring in all of this knowledge and documenting that and putting that accessible to everyone pretty much for free. And that's pretty much what we're trying to do as a, as a community, uh, to sustain the platform. I think there might be a very nominal or a sufficient, uh, you know, uh, you know, subscription model that we might have. That's something we're working on. It's called project X right now. We're not naming this right now till we actually announce it. And right. we are putting in a lot of content on that. And, uh, in fact, uh, so, so I, so that's for the, for the, for the audience over here. So Fazil and me are going to continue this conversation we're having right now into a series of talks, which are very beneficial and helpful for design students, uh, and make it into a community, uh, which, where you can learn from these audio and video podcasts. So we are, we are collecting that we are, we have a lot of universities and programs who are contributing. Uh,
0: can you hear me Sushant?
1: Yeah, I can hear you. Uh
0: there we go. Yes. So you're saying, yeah.
1: yeah. So basically, uh, so we are putting all of this content together and a lot of organizations from across the globe are helping us to put this, uh, thing together and we are curating this, uh, into a community. So that's something that's going to be opening up very soon. I would just say, stay tuned for that. And. Uh, you know, anybody who was associated with our previous programs or workshops will get an email invite for that very soon, but here we are having some mentoring, we are having some, uh, video tutorials, lectures, talks, uh, the best of the curated content, newsletters and all sorts of things accessible to all, uh, in a, in a very free manner and in an open community where everybody can teach each other and people can organize their workshops and all sorts of things. So there's some very exciting stuff, a lot of it I'm trying to hold back a lot of information till we actually do a formal release of this. Uh, but that's something that we've been working around the clock right now. You know, me and my entire team is really working on creating the best fit platform, which we can launch very soon uh, uh, to help people who are who are having disruptions in their education right now, especially. Sure. So that is one thing which is going to be very exciting. So. I think an extension of this talk, because we can talk endlessly on these subjects is going right. to be very selectively placed uh, you know, onto this platform as well. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, uh, so yeah, I, I hope, you know, uh, Art can support us on this platform as well and help us uh, build this curatorial platform.
0: Yeah. Of course, I mean, we're always open to, to partner with you. Uh, yeah. And uh, maybe where can people stay updated with some of the information ratlab arc and uh ratlab edu yeah
1: yeah so there are two instagrams ratlab arc and ratlab underscore edu so those are two active platforms uh, of, of instagram where you can stay tuned and get more information and uh, yeah i mean uh, now we're trying to become a little more responsive with uh, responding to our direct messages as well uh right. and i have another set of people who continuously filter the dms and uh Uh, pretty much I I, I log in at a certain time where I can access all of those things and kind of reach out to people and respond to people. So we are becoming very informal in our approach as well especially with the lockdown instead of the email approach. Uh, Even the interviews we are doing, online interviews and all sorts of things. So I think it's it's, it's an exciting time. We need to leverage this and capitalize on this uh, uh, connectivity right now. Uh, Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I hope people can stay connected with us and we have some exciting news coming up. We have some exciting projects which we're gonna be showcasing as well. Uh, uh, Since the lockdown is ending now, a lot of our construction on the projects are also starting. So we are very excited about that as well. So the projects which were pretty much on the drawing board are now getting onto the site. So there's a lot of activities happening uh, at the professional front and education front both. And uh, right now I'm committed Completely to design education in a manner that we can really change things and make it easily accessible for people. So yeah, looking awesome. forward to a lot I, more interactions.
0: That's great. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time out to do this. I'm sure a lot of people learned a lot from this. I learned a lot from this, and uh, hopefully we can carry it on on a uh, platform X <laughs> when it launches. Yes. Thank you so Absolutely. much, to and great, and thank you, for,
1: Thank you for having me here, and thanks thanks to all of key and all and, and uh, Arc platforms for for having this conversation and uh, yeah hopefully with with these uh, you know little gestures we can make a positive impact uh, on the world which is actually facing a difficult time right now all of us are facing the issues in in small or big ways so it's very important to support each other it's very important to be with each other in this journey of evolution and adaptation so thank you very Absolutely. much and Absolutely. signing off from rat Lab studio thank you
0: thank you, See you. Oh. Uh-huh.